So I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I announce the text, I want to have a rather longish longish introduction. It's not an Advent text. When one of your pastors and I talked about what I was going to preach on today three or four weeks ago, it didn't occur to me that today was the first Sunday in Advent. And um, maybe, maybe I would have chosen a different text, I don't know. But let's back way up and then come by degrees toward the text before I even announce it. Uh, how do we know that this is the Word of God? How do we know that this is true? Well, there are many ways. One way is, is its explanatory power. Uh, we're surrounded by mysteries. The greatest mystery is ourselves. The iniquity that we find in our own heart. The, the aspirations for holiness that we find in our own heart, that we, call, that we come short of. Um, history is uh, mysterious. Um, other human beings are mysterious. Uh, marriage is mysterious. Uh, we don't think it's very mysterious until we get married, and then we find out what a deep mystery it actually is. And um, we, we find in this book an explanatory power. I think I actually I may have mentioned this to you before and one of the few other times I was here, but um, when I say that the human is mysterious, how do we explain that unbelievers do so many noble things? And they do. We explain it by what the Bible tells us, that everyone, believer or unbeliever, are made in God's image. And as image bearers, there's a tremendous capacity and potential for nobility. How do we explain the appalling iniquity that believers sometimes fall into? Well, uh, the scripture tells us that we're all fallen. Even after we become believers, we're still fallen. We still have a sin nature. Now we have the possibilities of holiness because we have a new nature. That's a possibility that other that unbelievers don't have. But there's an explanatory power for human behavior uh, in this book. There's also a transformative power. I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I was, and I'm not what I shall be. When I became a Christian, I became unrecognizable to who I was before. Absolutely unrecognizable. Some of you maybe don't have dramatic uh, conversion stories or transformation stories, but uh, we're something very different than we would have been if we hadn't come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there are other ways. One other way is that Scripture is so brutally candid about the blemishes on the lives of its heroes, of its champions. And that's zeroing in a little further on what we're going to uh, talk about today. One important way to understand this book is to uh, let the Bible interpret the Bible. There are canons, the principles of interpretation. There's a fancy word called hermeneutic. It's not only used in theology and Bible interpretation, it's also used in law. Legal texts have to be interpreted. Uh, the Constitution has to be interpreted. The Supreme Court uh, decisions have to be interpreted. And so we find that even if we agree that this book is our authority, Christians who agree on that disagree on what it means. 
And so we have to work out, well, how do we determine what it means? Well, there are many canons. One is we interpret uh, contextually. Uh, we interpret plainly. That's probably a better word than literally. We, we interpret plainly. There's something else um, that the older writers used to talk about. And they even have a Latin name for it. But it's called the analogy of faith. And what we mean by that is we let the Bible interpret the Bible. Light shining on light. We let the, the clearer passages interpret the more obscure passages. We let the, uh, the obvious texts interpret the difficult text. And when the Scripture talks about somebody, we know that within the Bible, we know we're, we're, we're hearing something final uh, and authoritative. We, we, we discover that um, maybe God is stricter than we thought He was. Maybe He's stricter than we would have been. Maybe we find that out when the sons of, of Aaron are taken to summary judgment when they offer strange fire. Or that man who had good motives uh, called Uzzah. You remember Uzzah and Ahio were in charge of transporting the ark. And the, the oxen unsettled the ark. Now, they weren't supposed to take the ark like that, by the way. They were supposed to hold it on poles with human beings, but they were letting an, uh, animals transport the ark. And the animals unsettled the ark, and Uzzah put his hand up to settle the ark. God struck him dead. That's pretty strict. Matter of fact, it's pretty, it was so strict, David was upset at God because of that. Sometimes God is more lenient than we would have expected him to be. Maybe more lenient than, than we are. Um, when I read in 2 Peter 2 that Lot is righteous, I think, really? Lot is righteous? Somehow, I missed that. <laughs> Explain that to me. And we could take 15 minutes, we could talk about that. Well, he was righteous compared to his neighbors. He was righteous compared to his family. But righteous, that's a little bit of a stretch. And, and we, in our understanding, we come to Hebrews 11 and we find certain people in Hebrews 11 face Hall of Fame and we think, Samson, really? How did Samson get in there? You know, God is more gracious than we are, more lenient than we are in certain ways. Now, as for this thing called prayer, which we're going to talk about in a minute, I don't know if you know about Ezekiel 14, 14. But in Ezekiel 14, God compliments three great men of prayer. Uh, one is Noah, one is Daniel, and one is Job. And he says, you know, this, this nation is so wicked that even if Noah and Daniel and Job were interceding for it, they couldn't deliver the nation. They could only deliver themselves. Well, what an amazing compliment that God himself calls attention to the righteousness of these three, just as he called the devil's attention to the, more, to the spiritual grandeur of Job. We're almost to the text. So, now, you've been tipped off, so you're going to get this 100%. I think you would have gotten it 60 70 80% anyway. But who in the Bible is complimented by the Bible 
on being a great man of prayer. Who is it? Elijah. Good. And I know that so many of you would have known that if uh, Joshua hadn't read it responsibly from uh, James chapter 5. Okay, this question is a little bit harder. Who in the Bible is cited as someone clueless in prayer? Someone who didn't know what he was talking about when he prayed? Who knows? Who in the New Testament is cited about... Who is cited in the New Testament about somebody in the Old Testament who was totally clueless in prayer? Who knows? Raise your hand. I told you it was a little bit harder. Uh, turn, to, turn to Romans 11. That's not the text. We will, we will, we're not to the text yet. But let's just learn, let's try to lock this in. Because you see, Romans 11 in this verse is not nearly as well known among believers, or it's not cited among believers like James 5. So we get to Romans 11, verse 2, and it says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is the divine response to him? I reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Why do you think you're alone? How could you make such an outlandish claim like that? So who is the person in the New Testament, referring to the Old Testament, who's cited as someone totally clueless in prayer? Who is it? It's Elijah. It's the same person. Now here's the question. Who is Elijah really? Is he the mighty model for us as a righteous man who knows how to get his prayers answered? Or is he somebody clueless in prayer? He's both. Who is Abram really? Is he the man who out of fear drops his wife off in a pagan harem? Or is he the man who in Genesis 14 girds on his sword and goes after his nephew who's been made a hostage in the battle of nine kings. Who is he? He's both. Who is David? Is he the man after God's own heart? Is he the author of the middle book of the Bible? The author or the composer of the hymn book of Israel? Is he the sweet singer of Israel? Is he the slayer of Goliath? Or is the, the man who slew his own soldier, his most faithful captain, who wouldn't even sleep with his own wife out of loyalty to David's throne when David was willing to take the privilege of a husband with a woman he wasn't married to? Who is he really? He's both. And you see, my brothers and sisters, you and I have two natures. We receive a new nature born again. The very resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ beats in the heart of a born-again believer. But we still have these old natures. 
as long as we're in these bodies, we have an enormous capacity for sin. Just as we have all these great and precious promises and an enormous capacity for, for good and achievement in the kingdom of God. Now, one more thing about Elijah before we get to 1 Kings 19. There it is. There's the text. 1 Kings 19. Uh, it's actually, in the case of Elijah, it's actually much worse <laughs> the more you look at it. Uh, not, only was it not only was he clueless, but he prays a, he prays a prayer that's so bad, so awful, that God never answered the prayer. And, and here's the really bad thing about that. In his prayer, he asked for something that God gives to every man and woman. He asked for something that God always gives. And not only did God not give it to him then, God never gave it to him. What did he ask for? He has to die. God still hasn't answered that prayer, has he? Now, here's the thing. I remember one of the first Bible studies I ever went to as a new Christian, my senior year in college. And it was, it was called The Man God Uses. And it was about Daniel. And that just, that, that topic just excited me. It just thrilled me. It still thrills me. Uh, I want to know what Hudson Taylor ate for breakfast. I want to know everything about a man or woman of God. I want to know everything about Amy Carmichael because she is such a hero to me, heroine to me. Um, but you know what? I also want to know how David blew it with uh, Uriah. I want to know why and how Abram blew it twice, not just in chapter 12 at the beginning of his walk, but in chapter 20 when he'd already been told when the baby was going to be born. He'd been walking with God for almost 25 years. And he drops her off in a pagan harem again a second time. Unbelievable. And I want to know how could that possibly happen? So I... I I not only want to know all the wonderful strategies of victory, I, want, I also want to know all the terrible blunders of defeat. And I want to know the reasons which led a man who's committed as a model for prayer in James 5 could have brought him to a point where he asked for something so awful, something that God always gives, that God never gave it to. How could, he, how could he sink that low? We're going to find out. The answer is in 1 Kings 19. I'm going to read to maybe to verse 16 or 17. I don't know what your traditions are, but I'd ask you to stand in honor of God and His Word. This is 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now, what had happened just before is Elijah killed 400 false prophets who were dear, dear to the reigning queen. And so she sends him a message. And so we pick it up in chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. 
how he'd executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, you got less than 24 hours. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. There it is. There's the horrible prayer. And he said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days. About, he went about 250 miles. 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind, tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah. And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mehoiah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Heavenly Father, show us what it means. Show us why it matters. And let us know by experience the transformative power of your written word. For we ask it in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, how could he pray a prayer that bad, that terrible? How, how could he pray a prayer that God could never answer? Well, um, he prayed a prayer that bad because he was afraid. 
He was afraid of the wrong thing. Now, fear is not always bad. Fear is like money. It's neutral. It depends on what it does to you or for you, which determines whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. Uh, A child is known for the wrong fears. If you tell me what a man or woman fears, I'll tell you how mature they are. I'll tell you how mature they are in the the faith. Uh, If you fear going broke, you're probably not too mature in the faith if that's a, if that's a controlling fear. If you, if you fear dying too early, you're probably not very mature in the faith if, if that's a controlling fear. If you fear displeasing God, if you fear being out of the will of God, if you fear coming short of what God has designed for your life, that's a pretty good indication that you're maturing in the faith. A child may be afraid to sleep in the dark but not afraid to play on the railroad track. That's because the child is immature. He's assigned the wrong fears to the wrong objects. Now, we have to ask the question, you know, we have to answer the question, we've got to account for this because fear is also a transformative thing. Um... In chapter 18, he ran down a king. In chapter 19, he runs away from a queen. You see how he'd been transformed. He was transformed by fear. The wrong fear. So here's the great question. Uh, Why is he afraid? Because he had just just seen the the miracle of of the firefall in the answer to his prayer, the glorious demonstration that he really was a prophet and the God of Israel was a prayer-answering God and Elijah was his prophet. How could he possibly decline from a pinnacle that high? Well, he was afraid of the wrong thing because he was listening to the wrong In chapter 18, he was listening to the word of the Lord. So he chased down a king. In chapter 19, he was listening to the voice of a demon worshiper. Jezebel. So he ran away from a queen. Be careful what you're listening to because there are a lot of people talking to you. There's a lot of media out there. And there are are a lot of people trying to get into your ear so they they can get into your head. And, you know, um, first of all, it starts with with mimicry. A child learns to speak by listening. And if a child is listening to Mandarin, which is nearly impossible, or Arabic, which is nearly impossible, or Hungarian, which is nearly impossible, but if a baby listens to it long enough, pretty soon they're speaking Hungarian or they're speaking Mandarin. They're speaking Arabic. And if you and I listen to godly voices, even though by nature we're ungodly, over time uh, we'll be transformed and we'll be speaking in godly ways to the benefit of of godly people and to the correction of of ungodly people. So it's like the child song. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. 
Be careful what you listen to. Elijah was listening to the wrong thing. In verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger, and that messenger wasn't ultimately from Jezebel. That messenger was from the devil. And you and I should be at the place in our Christian lives, and we've been Christians very long, where we should uh, be able to distinguish between the voice of God and the, the voice of the devil. I, I confess, this is a horrible thing to confess, that I was looking at Twitter just yesterday, and somebody posted, which, which is very few of the voices on Twitter are godly voices. Now, I look for them, but I see a lot of other voices, too. I hear a lot of other voices, too. And somebody, a young woman, a young Christian woman, just asked, um, how, how do I distinguish between the voice of God and the voice of the devil? And uh, I almost wrote a reply, but I didn't. I wanted to, but I didn't. Um, let me just say one thing, which may be surprising, because there's a lot of fa false uh, health, wealth, prosperity, a lot of false and bogus encouragement out there. But the voice of the Lord doesn't discourage the, vo the voice of the Lord brings hope. As a matter of fact, I'll say this. This is going to seem like blasphemy in this pulpit almost, but um, I don't think we need to just talk in a consistent echo chamber and, and always condemn uh, how that pastor of the largest church in America down there in Houston, how he never preaches the gospel. Now, that's true. He doesn't. I don't think he comes within a thousand miles of the gospel. But what, what, what I want to know is why do so many people show up? And I also, and this is what I want to learn from people of different theological persuasions, and even people of different religions. Jesus said it himself, that the sons of darkness have something to teach the, ch the children of light. I hate Islam, but I admire their zeal. And I'm mortified by the fact that so many of their adherents are so much readier to die for what they believe than Christians are. And I'll say about that fellow down there in Houston, you know what? Uh, he gives people hope. He encourages people. That's a good thing. Now he does it totally with bogus emphases. But let's, let's learn something from that if we can. Because the, the, the voice of the Lord gives us hope. And encouragement. It doesn't tear us down. It, it builds us up. Well, Elijah was afraid of the wrong thing. And he was, uh, because he was, a, uh, he was listening to the wrong thing, because he was listening to the wrong thing, he was afraid of the wrong thing. Now, by the time you get to verse 4, uh, there are probably few verses in the Bible that feature more error in one verse than this verse. In the prayer of the great model for prayer in James 5, you find in 1 Kings 19.5 just a whole nest of errors. He prayed that he might die. Can you imagine such a thing? I'm sure you've heard this counsel uh, against suicide, and, and if you live long enough, 
it's very likely that you will hear of the suicide of a committed Christian. The godly man who was present at the Bible study where my wife became a Christian, he was a starting safety in the NFL, later committed suicide. Now, it was because of that NFL brain injury. It wasn't just that he sort of lost the way spiritually. But he took his own life. About four months ago, a colleague of mine in ministry in Eastern Europe, a man who moved to Romania, which was one of the two hardest places to live during the Iron Curtain period. There were pleasant, pleasant things in Hungary. There were pleasant things in, in the Czech Republic. There were pleasant things in Poland. But Romania was pretty bad. Someone who moved there with his kids and, and lived there uh, in a place called Yash near the Soviet border for over 10 years. He blew his brains out in Birmingham about four months ago. Unbelievable. And, you know, you, it's just, so Christians can get down. And I think one, of, one thing that you've all heard, which is a, a great counsel against suicide, there are many, and that is you don't want to rush into the presence of the Lord uninvited. But we're overruling God when we try to determine the, the day of our own death. I've lost two friends in the last week. One on Sunday in North Carolina and one on Thanksgiving Day at Baptist East. Somebody who had come through that door to hear me preach a long time ago. First time I ever preached here. She's with the Lord. And I think one of the things we have to trust the Lord with is who goes first, who goes last, and who goes next. Because we want to take that prerogative. We don't want to let the Lord have it. We would like to decide who goes first, who goes last, who goes next. And children, the Lord didn't consult us on the day that we, were, that we should be born, did he? I would have probably asked him to wait a little bit later. Um, it was a long time ago now. And he's not going to consult us on the day we should die. He's just not. And we ought not to advise him about the way we should die. That's a divine prerogative. Then he says, it is enough. How did Elijah know it was enough? Well, the answer is he didn't know. This is gross presumption for you to think you've done enough or you've lived long enough or you know what could happen tomorrow that would be needful. How dare we assume the knowledge of the Almighty and to think that we should... Well, I tell you, um, my friend who died last Sunday, his, her godly son wrote to me this verse. I can't even remember the, part of the first part of the verse. It's something like, who has understood the ways of the Lord? But the, the next part I remember, who has become his counselor? So what's Elijah doing? He's assuming the role of God's counselor. Lord, it's enough. Now, we can plead with God. We're invited to do that, but we shouldn't prescribe to God. And we shouldn't presumptuously assume that we know stuff that hasn't occurred to God. It's enough. And then he says, 
take my life. Is if he's the arbiter over life and death. And then he says, for I'm no better than my father's. Now I gave you a little test. I asked you about who's the person commended in the New Testament. I asked you who's the person who's sort of uh, ridiculed in the New Testament and in Romans 11. Let me ask you another question. Teach your, uh, test your Bible knowledge. What was the name of Elijah's father? Who knows? Raise your hand. Now that was a trick question. The other two were very legitimate questions. It's a, it's a trick question because Elijah's father is not named in the Bible. And why is Elijah's father not named in the Bible? Elisha's father is named in the same chapter. Why don't we know the name of Elijah's father? Well, I have to confess, I really don't know. But I would guess that uh, one reason we know Elijah's name and we don't know his father's name is because Elijah is better than his father's. He's more important than his father's. He's more consequential than his father's. It's more needful for us to know the name of Elijah than to know the name of his father. So if Elijah could try hard to say three dumb things in a row, he couldn't have done any better than this. And yet he's the model for prayer. This is an awful prayer. It's an awful prayer. It's also a prayer that's awful. Because it's illogical. So what's the problem? Well, Lord, Jezebel's trying to kill me. Okay, so what should we do? Lord, please kill me. Uh, can we go over that again? Let's start over. So what do you worry about? Well, I, well I'm worried. I'm worried I'm going to die. So what can I do for you? Please let me die. Now, okay, I'm being a little bit funny because if Elijah were here, he could defend himself. He could say, look, creep, talking to me. He would say, look, um, he may say that to me one day. I better be careful what I say about him. He, he, I, would you rather Jezebel kill you or would you rather God kill you? If Jezebel killed me, it was going to be very unpleasant. If God killed me, it would be merciful. So, okay, I will cede that point. But it's still an illogical prayer. I'm so worried about death. I'm so worried about death that I want you to kill me. When Elijah wakes up in the cave, he encounters an angel. As a matter of fact, he encounters an angel twice. And both times the angel tells him something surprising. Because if an angel comes to speak to you, you're ready for something really profound, something profoundly spiritual, something that you couldn't have imagined because this is, this is God's supernatural messenger. So what does the angel say? The angel says, you know, man, you're really stressed out. Uh, you need to get a little rest and get a little nourishment. Get a little sleep. Eat the right food. Recover your, your senses and your, your emotions. You're completely strung out. I mean, 
you'd almost think the angel was a Jewish mother offering chicken soup. And yet, you know, sometimes that's the message we need to heed from the Lord. Uh, I don't know what your uh, theology is about the Sabbath. I do everything I can in my theology to avoid the responsibilities. And I've been thinking about that lately. I've been convicted about that lately. I think I've sinned in my life against the Sabbath. One of the problems that I have is that uh, there's no frontier between what I love to do and what I have to do. So I just keep doing it because I love it so much. And it's not, it's not like work to me. But still, uh, there are principles. And sometimes we just need to rest. And Elijah needed sleep. And Elijah needed a little nourishment. And that's what the Lord the Lord's messenger told him. Now we see it, we see in verse seven, uh, verse, excuse me, verse ten, where he says, "I alone am left, and they seek to take my life." Now, one reason the the prayer was awful was because it was based on falsehoods, and this is why it's so um, dangerous for you and I to want to overrule God, because. However intelligent we think we are, our understanding is microscopic compared to the omniscient, all-good, all-powerful God. And when we, um, when we come to the Lord thinking we know better, and by the way, I see this in unbelievers all the time. Unbelievers especially atheists who don't even believe that God is there, but they're very angry at God, which is something C.S. Lewis said about himself in the years he was an atheist. Um, unbelievers are very angry about God's distribution of judgment. They don't like the way God judges the world. They object to God's judgment over the world. But they don't have any problem judging God. They would deny to the Creator the right and appropriateness of judging his creatures. And they would arrogate to themselves the authority to judge the creator as a creature. It's an amazing thing. Now, that's a little bit moral and conceptual. This is mathematical. His math was bad. He hadn't surveyed the reality sufficiently to know what the deal was. That's another thing advantage God has over us. Uh, God knows secrets. God knows everything. I'm sometimes asked if I think that person is a Christian. I say, well, whether I do or not, it doesn't matter because I don't know. Yeah, you can, um, you can gather evidence and maybe you can make a reasonable guess, but I don't, I don't know. Was Ravi Zacharias a Christian? I don't know. I would have lost a $10,000 bet on that one. Because I don't know. God knows. God knows secrets. And Elijah's calculation, and by the way, the true prophet is probably the most aware person in the land. So the most aware person in the land 
only miscounted by 7,000. He was not only off, he was way off. You know, however confident we may be in our own wisdom, uh, I'm pretty sure we're way off in some of our calculations. We need to enter these discussions with deep humility as we wait on the Lord to show what the real deal is. Now, by the close of the section, uh, not only was not only was the life he'd lived so far not enough, but in some ways, and I don't pretend to have the wisdom to make this judgment, neither have I done the research to even hazard a guess, but I think it's possible that his most consequential activity was ahead of him. There's nothing sadder than a ministry that used to be great that appears to be dying. And... I know of a couple of ministries like, like that, and, and when I pray for them, I pray something that, that seems so improbable, but it, it's so much the desire of my heart. Lord, I pray that the future days would be better than the former days. And boy, did Elijah ever have consequential work to do. And let me just tell you this. Do you know why you have important work to do? Do you know why I can say, if you're a believer to every one of you, that you have important work to do because you're still alive. Because you're still here. And one of the great questions is, why am I still here? What did Jim Elliott and David Brainerd, greatest missionary of the colonial period, most Consequential missionary of the 20th century. American missionary. And Robert Murray McShane, greatest preacher in the history of a nation which has produced great preachers. The nation of Scotland. What a David Brainerd, Liz, uh, Jim Elliott, and Robert Murray McShane all have in common. They never saw their 30th birthday. And so the question is, what am I doing still here? Well, the answer to that question rests with God. So Elijah told God, you see if he could inform God of anything, it's enough, it's enough now, we'll have no more of this business. Time for me to die. You need to answer that request. God didn't just say no. He said, go. Verse 15, go. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. This was a menacing enemy that threatened Israel's northern flank. You're going to anoint the kings in the other place. You shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And then you will appoint your successor, Elisha. You got stuff to do. You got stuff to do that matters in other nations. You got stuff to do that matters in your nation. 
You got stuff to do that affects directly the spiritual health of my people Israel. I'll decide when you die. And so far, the decision is not yet. Maybe the decision is not ever. But maybe the decision is not yet. Do you know that there are some Bible teachers, I don't know if they're scholars or not, I'll just say Bible teachers, who believe that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11? It's an intriguing thought. I don't know if it has any merit or not. I haven't studied the question sufficiently to render an opinion. I just say that's an intriguing idea. Because Hebrews 9 says it is appointed to man once to die. What if we discovered that the two witnesses of Hebrews, uh, of Revelation 11, were Enoch and Elijah? Wouldn't that be something? That they're coming back to take their turn. That's an intriguing thought. But I don't really want you to think about it, and I shouldn't have mentioned it. I want you to think about that you and I, by virtue of the new birth, by virtue of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, by virtue of the Holy Scripture which lies in our hands before us, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, and by virtue of the Holy Scripture, and by virtue of all the promises of God which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, you and I have an opportunity to be the Elijah of 1 Kings 18. We have the possibility of being the Elijah of James 5. Or we have the possibility of being the man in 1 Kings 19 who prayed a prayer so bad. God has waited almost 3,000 years and he still hasn't answered it. So let's pray now. Father, we all agree on who we ought to be. We all agree on who we hope to be. And we all believe that it doesn't lie solely within us what we shall be. We want to cast ourselves on your promises. We want to avail ourselves of all that Jesus died to give us. We want to be your woman, your man, in our generation, in this generation, which may be, for all we know, the last generation. But we know one thing, it's our last generation. So Father, make us to look to you in faith, so that our life would count in our time. For we ask it in Jesus' wonderful name and for his sake. Amen.